Hi guys, my name is Rupan Paul. I'm your host. Now this podcast is a bit different, so I thought I'll just say a few words before we start the show. So in this episode, I have a discussion with Shrehit. Shrehit is one of the co-founders at FinShots, and we have a long talk about the education and unemployment problem in our country that we're currently facing. So this is a rather long discussion. In the first half, we just talk about the outcomes in the current education system and how it's leading to the unemployment crisis among educated people. And in the second half, we talk about how do we go about rectifying this problem. And in the end, both Shrehit and I talk about what it means to both of us to work in a startup. So we have a great episode lined up for you, and I hope you guys enjoy the show. And with me is one of the co-founders at Finshot. So happy to have him on this special episode that we are recording. Uh, Shrehit Karkera, Shrehit. First of all, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Rupen. I mean, I've, it's ironic that we've been doing this for I don't know, maybe a good one and a half, two years now, and I've never had the chance to probably grace the podcast. I suppose. I think I did a small voice you recording. You did a small bit, point. yeah. yeah, yeah you featured bit, yeah. on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Outside of that, yeah, I mean, I've never had the opportunity to actually come on here. So, no, yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah, I'm glad that we're doing this, and I think uh, this will be I don't know, reasonably productive, I suppose. Um, yeah, so, hopefully. So, yeah, no, glad to be here. <laughs> glad to yes, be here. that's. That's right. This is the first time we're having a conversation and uh, I actually wanted to have this conversation with you a long time ago, right? Um, because I think we put out a story sometime last year about, you know, the, I think the, the story was called the death of Chinese edtech, where we were talking about how, you know, the Chinese government was trying to, you know, um, hit the kill switch on edtech companies, right? And uh, companies that were basically educating people about aspects related to technology to make them get jobs, right? And I think the underlying premise behind that was that the government kind of figured out that, you know, there's a lot of people who are graduating as, you know, technical people who are quote-unquote technically skilled, but there are not enough jobs to, you know, match that supply of people who are technically able. And I thought that's like a very big parallel with India. Uh, Do you agree? Yeah, no, I, I think I think you know what with with the with the Chinese thing, it was it, it was it was crazy for two reasons. Yeah, one is because the Chinese ed tech industry is so massive. You know, you you'd expect that the Chinese government would be more prudent while while dealing sort of a, a harsh sentence to 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 the very institutes that seem to be propelling their economy. Um, but on the other hand, they also recognize the fact that. This was heightening anxiety. I mean, you had kids who were completely obsessed about this one exam. Parents were spending ludicrous amounts of money in getting their kids ready for, you know, I mean, the parallel exam here is JE. Obviously, they have their similar exam. And obviously, it meant that somebody had to intervene. And market forces there weren't intervening. In that, it wasn't as if the ed tech industry came to, you know, this fateful recognition that they're distorting the very idea of education and obviously because profit motives yeah um, but but once the Chinese government probably recognized that there is a fault in the ecosystem they came in and said yeah you know we, sh- we should probably do something about it and obviously that's also to do with the fact that they're probably churning out more technical graduates so to speak as opposed to the labor force that can actually match that demand um, but but in many ways, I suppose it was the anxiety and the induction of anxiety in young kids and parents that that propelled this this idea in the first place. So so that that was extraordinary in many ways. And I I remember the moment we published that story, we got so many comments from Indians. Um, I mean, obviously our readers 
who, right. who agreed with with what China did. That's not something that happens. Yeah, I mean, you don't hear <laughs> you hear, yeah. you hear people going, oh, you know what, the Chinese government is doing the right thing here. Um, yeah. And I was surprised by the sort of reaction and the outpour because I think we've come to recognize some of the same faults in our ecosystem. And no, you're right. I think I think you know we have to see how the Chinese experiment pans out and if there's any merit in in probably you know policymakers intervening at some level. You know uh, that, that doesn't mean we do the same thing as the Chinese counterparts, but but you know just seeing if there is some kind of intervention that's required. Right. But I think if not for anything, I, this entire, you know, whatever China did at that point of time with edtech companies is that at least highlighted the problem, if not solved it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was it was more about, you know, I, I think the problem was already there. It was evident. Yeah? I mean, you you go into Chinese social media websites and you'll see parents complaining about this. And I think that's something that we recognize in the Indian society as well. I mean, you go. And what were on, majority of these complaints about? I mean, usually about the the obsession with this one exam and the way, you know, tu- tuitions. I mean, that's yeah. let's let's call them you know tuition centers because that's what they were. Some of them online, some of them offline, but ultimately they, they in some ways I think they both tied to do the same thing because look, heightening anxiety is a staple of the advertisement industry. When Sephora sold its first product, it wasn't a hit right off the bat. I mean, they had yeah. to, you know, they had to conjure up images of ambulances and, and yeah. heart disease. And <laughs> it's it's obvious, you know, immediately you saw like a spurt. Everybody wanted Sephora because they were worried about dying. And in some ways, obviously, the, the edtech industry also sort of thrived in the same ecosystem. They convinced parents that if, if, if your child doesn't crack this exam, in some ways nail the um, scores that, that are deemed acceptable, then they'll probably be sidelined. Yeah, I mean, you know, images, you know, some images of, of you know, a small subset of children probably galloping ahead and leaving, leaving the less fortunate kids and obviously the less prepared kids in some sense behind. It's frightening for any parent. So I think, I think these kind of images, these kind of sort of uh, over the, uh, over the top uh, advertisements led parents to believe that, that, yeah, perhaps my kids will be left behind but but you had a small minority that did not uh, accept the status quo i mean they were the ones that were protesting and i think we have the same thing happening in india as well you have a small subset of of parents who are refusing to budge i mean they, they don't you know they, they're recognizing the impact that it's having on their kids and they're saying that these edtech institutions that are supposed to have a positive effect on outcomes education outcomes um career prospects etc seem to be having the exact opposite effect Right, the negative impacts, um, and so uh, that's the criticism about. It's like, okay, fine, you, you you're optimizing your outcomes, income, and getting more children enrolled. But what's what's the impact that's leaving on a generation of kids that's scarred? I mean, it's the same reason why I suppose three idiots when it came back, you know, last decade. I mean, no, actually, it was two thousand eight, no, two thousand nine. No, yeah, it's yeah, more than, yeah, uh, more than yeah. a decade. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, everybody sort of um, in some ways related to it because they could see the impact it was having. On a, on a whole generation of kids. Um, and, and obviously that's not desirable by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so, so yeah, in some ways, I, I suppose it's happening in India as well. Those fault lines are opening up. Right, but let me ask you this on a personal level because you're someone who studied in an IIM, right? right, so right. Is it, was it like when you were preparing for CAT, when you were preparing to give this exam, did you also feel that you know this exam could potentially um, you know hold the keys to a much better life 
than what the other people in your age group in your uh, your social economic group were currently having or would be you know um, you know led to by virtue of whatever they took oh yeah yeah i think you know my story was, was obviously i mean it was uh, it, it, it was quite slightly different because i didn't imagine that i was actually going to crack the exam i mean i i thought this was just going to be an experiment of sorts that i believed would i mean in the least would would help me um become a better teacher because at the time i was i was teaching at a coaching institute um so in some ways i'm a product of the system yeah i i i've right. seen this i've seen this happening right in front of my eyes how education institutes coaching institutes heighten anxiety but but before i get there i think perhaps it makes sense to probably pull back a bit because look i'm an engineer as well you know as as i'm sure right. many of our listeners um can recognize i'm pretty sure most of them are engineers um right. and and they probably seen their friends and family and cousins who've also gone through the same process and say this. they probably recognize this uh, the the skill gap that you know you were talking about you know the story that you were alluding to earlier i think it's obvious and one of the reasons why i immediately after graduating i opted out of the placement process because because i recognized that that wouldn't optimize outcomes i mean i went to a tier 2 engineering institute Um, and that's not to say that it's it's bad per se but i i did recognize the fact that i my my career prospects were limited yeah if anything um so so there was a recognition that this wasn't just going to cut it for me and i had to do something else and obviously i got into teaching still trying to figure things out and then cat happened and and obviously the moment i i i scored well i i did see the immense potential that it held for me because otherwise mm. i i thought i was going to sort of suffer in this in the sea of mediocrity and i was going and to and this is yeah. this is after you studied like a technical degree right a degree yes, that yes. is valid in the market not just a degree that is uh, you know obscure or not really needed by the market it was like by you studying something technical yeah, yeah. correct yeah yeah i mean it was an engineering degree i was a computer science graduate right. um i i i mean obviously it's a tier 2 institute but it 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 did held some i mean it was it was a recognized institute yeah by aict mm. ugc mm. as well um so so yeah i mean it, it wasn't an obscure degree that i was just you know um getting from some <laughs> non recognized institute this was this is a proper degree and and obviously if, as many people would agree with me the moment you graduate from an engineering college it doesn't mean you know outcomes are going to be optimized as well you're going to have yeah, a struggle is- ahead of you yeah which is quite shocking actually because i uh, i mean i opted out of engineering right mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. i think when i was 18 and the only reason is uh, i had I, i had written the entrance exams and i just saw the people <laughs> who were writing the exams with me and i said right. these people don't really look that happy for whatever reason <laughs> right as opposed yeah. to like you know a college which was a non engineering college which is eventually i did a degree in science uh, from mm-hmm. that college but the only difference was uh, it was very surprising because when i had placements and also when my peers had placements in their engineering colleges our stories were vastly different right yeah. Uh, yeah. Th- they would always tell me that it's engineering is so uh, is a bit um, you know it's kind of like you you expect something and what actually happens is something else right so they were telling me yeah. that their placements were not that you know frequent in terms of the companies um, the number of companies coming to their um, you know uh, colleges and so on as opposed to you know like a college like mine because it was not an engineering colleges uh, engineering yeah. college so what they would just look for they would look for people who are at least speaking well enough right Soft and skills. have a 
decent amount yeah who basically have a decent amount of soft skills who are, who are able to have some sort of a work ethic and then filter yeah. out you know candidates whom they can get into their companies so yeah. i i thought that was quite surprising that you know the yeah. placement in a non engineering um, fully technical college uh, was so was kind of better than a technical college like an engineering college yeah uh, do no, you I mean, have any idea why that is so it's you know what it's funny you ask me that question because the most obvious answer is well you know i mean i'm pretty sure most most of our listeners would probably have had this conversation with their friends or family where they're going they ever wonder why people still why for engineering degrees even though they know they're fully aware that once they do graduate they're going to have such a tough time on their hands just finding a decent stable job it it boggles my mind i mean i i spent hours thinking about this question like market forces should fix this problem like let's let's let me give you a simpler example let's suppose you have a company that's making you know let's suppose you you have somebody who's who's making um a simple product yeah let's um let's assume a router yeah um, you know mm-hmm. it connects to the internet etc helps it's a gateway of sorts yeah let's suppose this router routinely fails yeah what should happen to the company the company will eventually go out of business because the people buying the product will recognize that you know they're not they're not they're not getting what they thought they were getting and so at some point they will finally realize that this product is junk and move away right and so in some ways it should have happened with the engineering degree as well people i mean it's abundant examples after example after example people just not finding good jobs and you would think that that would self correct at some point students enrolling in these courses would recognize the fact that this wouldn't work for them and the parents also would have recognized it by then and they would course correct in some ways they would probably look at other alternatives and yet it hasn't happened i think if i'm not wrong we're churning out a million engineering graduates every year now that that seems yeah. ludicrous considering the fact that first we're not churning out enough high skill jobs in the labor market to accommodate these people that's the first problem and the second problem is that 80% of that 1 million graduate by some estimates aren't even aren't even employable they don't have the basic skills that engineering as a profession demands so in some ways you have which to be thinking which i think is which is very true on a very simple level even without right. a statistic right because you are right. someone who who graduated from computer right. science right. but you know as I, I, yeah. and and this is true i think across uh, computer science colleges across india that the number of people who have enrolled for a computer science degree and the people who can actually write their own code is probably <laughs> just like what 10% of, 10% is a big number for the entire it, it, class i think i think i think you're overestimating it yeah, i think 10% was, is a very big number yeah i think it I, must I be way smaller Yeah. You know Rupen, I graduated I think near the top of my class. I wasn't exactly the top of my class but near top of my class and I swear to god I couldn't code to save my life, you know. <laughs> like I I just couldn't. And and yeah. I used to I used to think about this and and this would bother me to no end. And so I did a bit of reading recently to figure out what's actually happening here. Like this this shouldn't happen. And you know the story doesn't begin now. Like if you if you want to truly understand the scope of the crisis here that we have at hand you have to go back in time we're talking about 1980s 1990s 1980s 1990s engineering wasn't the top most profession i mean obvious reasons right i mean you had the public sector dominate every industry uh, because that was you know that was how policy was decided right um there was license raj you you simply couldn't mm-hmm. open your own enterprise and perhaps 
you know, thrive in that ecosystem. So, yeah, this 1991, is all pre-liberalization. This is pre-liberalization before yeah. 1991, and before you know, entrepreneurs could actually set up something of their own. Um, didn't have to beg for licenses and actually could do something that they believe would add value to their customers and in turn, obviously, India as a whole. Um, so, so the moment the private sector could participate in the Indian growth story, everything changed. Until then, you could see this one metric. So it's almost like return on investment. Let's suppose you 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 invest in you know anything, right? It could be an asset, it could be a vehicle, and you look at the return. And sometimes it's not tangible. Like for instance, you know, if you're buying a vehicle, it's not obvious to calculate the utility that it adds to your life. But in other cases, for instance, education, it's very easy. If you spent four lakhs on an engineering degree, you could then say, okay, fine. What's the lifetime value that I derived from that education, right? By looking at the money you make eventually, the income that you generate over the next 20, 30 years. And so it's easy to calculate the return on investment for any sort of education. Or in the case of a government job, it's it's equally simple, right? You look at, and it's a very stable opportunity. So you could project income and then you could say, okay, what's the return on investment if I crack UPSC, for instance, or say if I crack a, a, a you know, a PO exam, right? Bank PO exam, mm-hmm. something of yeah. that sort. And so, In the 1990s, everything changed. The return on investment from engineering degrees started growing exponentially, partly because of the IT boom, right? You had the likes of Infosys and and many other Wipro, etc., trying to make a dent in the IT ecosystem, and you saw that return on investment for engineers exploded, right? I mean, you you saw an exponential growth, which explains the rise of engineering colleges in the 90s and the 2000s, right? Because when people recognize that their opportunities um the more opportunities if they pursue an engineering degree they're going to do that right you you're going to have more parents nudge their kids to pursue that program and you're going to have kids who probably going to be aspirational in terms of becoming an engineer right and and so this this persisted right for the next two decades and you had this explosion and you you saw the it boom and you had all of these kids who 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 were just coming out of the engineering um graduate program becoming useful part of the um indian workforce right actually yielding outcomes that benefited not just them as an individual but also the country as a whole which explains the exponential growth that we saw as an economy right during the 2004 2008 period but here's where things start to go wrong at some point the balance of favor tips right in that you now have more engineering graduates coming out of these colleges and fewer job opportunities to accommodate these people right this this happened somewhere in the in the 2000s right maybe Do the early 2000s a, only a rough estimate of when this happened uh, like i said it's probably somewhere in you know 2004 2005 right this is this is when the boom was just just happening right in front of us right. yeah i mean I, you know right. that, that was also the period of exponential growth for india mm-hmm. but by then mm-hmm. you know you already had the scale tip slightly right mm-hmm. so that's that's my understanding and post you know obviously after you know 2008 growth rates moderated it i mean it was still growing but it wasn't growing at the breakneck speeds it was you know pre 2008 the financial crisis etc and and you know right about that time we also recognized the fact that we were simply churning out more engineering graduates than than the country needed now at this point again market forces should intervene now you you understood this there aren't enough jobs which means that some of these graduates 
will find suboptimal opportunities, right? The return on education will diminish and it is, you know, it diminished quite rapidly, right? At that point in time. And they should have made better choices. They should have probably told themselves, okay, this isn't working out. What do I do elsewhere, right? I mean, are there better opportunities? And there is an argument to be made that there weren't better opportunities, but there's also an argument to be made that people continue to enroll in masses, right? I mean, we didn't see growth plateau at all. If anything, you know, enrollment started increasing. Now, most people think that that's because of the perception in the in the uh, middle class ecosystem that we have, right? I mean, my parents, for instance, were obsessed with the engineering degree. And they didn't care much for outcomes after my graduation program. They only cared that their son was an engineer. That's the only thing that mattered to them. And you could argue that that's that's true for a lot of these kids as well. They'll probably tell you the same things. Oh, my parents wanted me to be an engineer. That's the only thing that mattered to them. But that's only partly true, right? Because at some point you realize that the name doesn't mean much. And that should have self-corrected again. It should have pushed parents and children to reconsider their choices. Mm-hmm. But it didn't happen, right? It didn't happen. In fact, even now, I think now the growth rates are moderating. I think finally we've come to recognize that engineering may be a suboptimal choice. But mm-hmm. but it's not happening at a pace that that economists would have expected it to happen at because obviously it's not it's not good for children. It's, it's, it, they're graduating and they're not earning as much. Like myself, I graduated as a computer science engineer and I quickly recognized that I wasn't going to get a job based on the skill set that I had that would optimize for the next five, six years, which is why I pursued other alternatives. Luckily for me, you know, IAM happened and, and things obviously panned out that, that right. I mean, I couldn't complain about it. But for most people, that doesn't happen, right? I mean, they're stuck in this loop, right? They can't get out of it. It's, it's the middle income trap in some sense. And and, right. and it's unfortunate that it's come to that. So so going back, yeah. So so what happened? So why is it that when when everybody knows for a fact that you know engineering is a suboptimal choice, that enrollments continue to increase, market distortions. And this goes back to the example that we quoted earlier. You know, we talked about these edtech institutes cropping up on the side. See what they do is they heighten anxiety. They heighten anxiety to a point where they create demand, artificial demand that shouldn't have existed in the first place. It's almost like them telling you, convincing you that the opportunities are limitless. When in fact, the opportunities are limitless only for a small subset of those people. I mean, Probably sure, the they only focus on... the of those people. It's usually 2 to 3%. That's, that's yeah, the, the number that we're talking about, right? Right. I mean, it's only optimized for them. So everybody else will have suboptimal outcomes. But... That's not what people focus on. You see? So they, in other words, they give you the best case scenario, but not the most happening scenario, right? Like of course not. Tends to happen uh, mostly, most likely or not, majority of people are going to fall into this bracket, but that's not what, that's got what we're going to ignore. Instead, we're going to choose yes. on what's going to happen to the top two to three percent of the entire uh, section that we're studying. Yeah. Precisely, right? But, but now you would think that, oh, it's only the... You know, these edtech institutes, I mean, this happened, what, after 2015, that's when they truly got the, you know, financial muscle power to probably change opinion, influence right. opinion at a, at a scale that now, I mean, obviously is, is incredible. But, but, but before that, what was happening? And I'll tell you, you will not believe this, but <laughs> there, there is a parallel industry for engineering colleges. Because look, the moment that 
trusts and 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 you know so so education is a non-profit initiative in this country so mm-hmm. you can't you know you can't create for-profit edu- you know engineering institutions and take money out of the college so that doesn't Got work but you can still find ways to channel money outside right? <laughs> right and so private institutes suddenly recognized that they could make a lot of money if they were in this discipline right in this mm-hmm. domain mm-hmm. and so you had a crop of purely self-financed private institution because before that it used to be a mix of both you had the government paying a small portion of of the funds needed to maintain an institution and obviously mm-hmm. it was self-financed to a small degree as well mm-hmm. but then you had this wave of colleges crop up right private institutions fully self-financed because they recognize the money-making potential here and so mm-hmm. what you saw in the ed tech industry right now play out right in front of your eyes happened at a much more subliminal scale in that you had middlemen i mean this this is a real example you had middlemen in in bihar and uttar pradesh who would scout villages to bring engineering to bring kids that would enroll in engineering programs yeah i mean i mean their whole job was to and they they would get paid what 50 60000 some would make up to 10 12 lakhs just by being middlemen who would plug the gap because demand like i said had tapered by then people began to recognize especially in tier 1 tier 2 cities that that probably may not be the most prudent choice so you had the self financed private institutions do everything in their power right to 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 enroll kids in the program they would offer discounts they would call them you'd see marketing material big flyers promotional material talking about the you know the the the, the absurdly small number of kids that eventually go on to you know take the big money right you're talking about a small small number of people right they they hyping it up to a point where they're distorting the market right now now some will look at this and argue isn't a better alternative for these education institutes to active actually optimize for outcomes like imagine if i was running a engineering college and i thought okay fine how do i get more kids to enroll in my college okay let me optimize outcomes placements etc right i mean let me make sure that their education is tip top let me make sure that they're actually well equipped to deal with the demands of the workforce and let me get them to enroll in my education institute based on the testimonials of the students that have passed out right i mean that would be a more prudent strategy but see the problem with that is that's a long term strategy and that's a very expensive program and the outcomes aren't very certain right if i was running an institute and i said okay this is what i'll do i'll change my curriculum if i had the opportunity to do it most colleges don't but let's suppose some colleges did have autonomous institutes that had flexibility in in changing the curriculum and all of that and you could say okay fine maybe at some point in time i could i could actually build an education institute that is top class but doing that will probably take 10 years and it doesn't bring you immediate cash flows that's what you need if you if you can't survive the first two or three years you're not going to survive for long right so what they do is they completely abandon this program right they don't want to hire competent teachers and we'll get to that we'll get to the teachers bit but they don't do any of this instead they say okay if i really wanted immediate cash flows here's what i'm going to do i'm going to invest in marketing i'm going to create fake testimonials i'm going to convince people that engineering is this amazing place where everybody could make lots and lots of money and that's how i'm going to get kids enrolled and so the boom the engineering boom that you saw was only partly created by you know middle class mums and dads who believe that you know <laughs> outcomes yeah. would be optimized if they pursued their degree but primarily because 
there's a small subset of private institutions that's completely distorted the perception of what engineering actually means to this country and to the kids. And so now right. it's like, yeah, how do you even stop this? Right? Because, and it's like because, a feedback loop, right? Because yeah. what tends to happen is the more uh, fear mongering and the more marketing that basically private institutions and private educators try to put out, that yeah. further feeds in that belief that parents say like, you know what, engineering is the way out and uh, you probably are better off doing it or it's as good as being doomed to being staying in the same place as we are yeah. currently. So I think, yeah, I think that is definitely a problem. So that's part of it. And there's also the fact that the threshold for enrollment is set so low, right? I mean, in some cases, I think, I mean, you could get into the rank list, for example, you know, the entrance examination, even by scoring, I think it's Carol, I don't remember the specific example, but but 20 out of 620 or some some ridiculous number like right, that. It's like any, <laughs> any, anybody could get in, you know, like anybody mm. can get in. So, so there's no real competition. And finally, talking about teachers, because see, that, that's another thing. I remember my college. I mean, as much as I like the time that I did spend there, I have to be critical of the education that I was imparted. Now, there's a lot to be critical about myself as well. Like if I right. wanted, I could have taken initiative and I could have done right. something. But there's also a criticism to be laid, you know, in terms of the education that I did get. Right? I mean, most of my teachers read from the textbook and I'm pretty sure they didn't understand 90% of what they were saying. Like they had no clue themselves. And now, and I'm pretty sure most, most people that are listening to it probably recognize these faults as well. The teachers just aren't good enough. And, and here's the kicker. You'd expect that since there are about a million graduates, you'd probably have about 20% of them pursuing postgraduate programs, yeah? But that's not true at all. About I think it's about 0.5% or something of that sort. Mm -hmm. So you don't have enough teachers coming out of postgraduate programs, which means that there's only a select pool of teachers available. And it's so bad that if you check for duplicates, right? Some of these colleges don't even want to have teachers. They'll buy them off the market. And so they'll have a duplicate. I mean, it's I think there were 30 or 40% duplicates, right? I mean, you'd, you'd find the same guy teaching in multiple institutes when, in fact, he's right. probably not teaching anywhere, right? I mean, yeah. that, that, that's, that's how bad it's gotten. And, you know, now what's the obvious solution? Where some would say, look, we should probably stem the number of engineering colleges that are cropping up right now, right? And that's precisely what AICTA has done. You can't mm -hmm. have new engineering colleges until 2024, right? And they're closing oh, down this, a lot of these. Is this a rule that has been brought forth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think Which it's is currently active. You yeah, yeah. If I'm new... not wrong, yeah. I mean, I don't think you could have new engineering colleges. And they're closing down a lot of engineering colleges that have existed that simply mm -hmm. can't seem to put up the numbers, yeah? So they're right. shutting them down because they realize that these are the people that are distorting the market. And they don't want that to happen, yeah? The feedback loop is broken, so you need to fix this. And, and so in some ways, I think things are being done. But then again, if you still have graduates who... I mean, look at the curriculum as well. It's woefully outdated, most of the curriculum doesn't matter at all. In fact, when we are hiring at, at you know, FinShots, Ditto, etc., we're also looking for a small subset of engineers who are, who are really, really talented, yes. But, but oftentimes, we're not even scouting for that. We're scouting for the bare minimums. And we're willing to pay above market salaries just to entice these people because there's so few folks out there. You know? and, and that's the problem that I was talking about. Like, these colleges have no incentive to fix this because that doesn't optimize outcomes in the short run. Like that could probably optimize outcomes in five to 10 years, 
when when obviously the testimonials crop up and kids talk about how they landed this amazing job thanks to the education that they received but but that's a long game that nobody wants to play instead everybody wants to focus on the short term and the only way to plug that gap is to make sure you 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 herd in as many students as possible into the undergraduate program and get them enrolled it's so it's it's yeah it's a tragedy i suppose in some ways right but, so but how some, yeah uh, well, if i can ask at this point uh, so you were mentioning you know the top 2 to 3% have their options sorted they have a wide array of options to choose from in terms of what they yeah. can take their career uh, forward in and so on but what about the you know the majority of people right who are left right. without those options so right. how does one even start you know looking at that landscape because see right now uh there is this problem where there is a lot of people who have been educated most likely or not by means through of an engineering degree but there are very few engineering jobs and even if there are those jobs majority of these people are not competent enough to do those jobs so what about these people what could be done about you know individuals um who you know are in this place where they're educated but they're not competent enough to do a technical job and have basically no other option left so how does one go about addressing you know this huge problem yeah no that that's an excellent question and and look i'm not sure if if you've seen this happen but um again right when you see that there is a massive gap in in supply in 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 supply of high quality technical engineering graduates there will be an industry that will crop up to fix this problem and right now you have a parallel industry that's trying to sort of you know obviously we have you're seeing a lot of vc money come in to the indian landscape and you're seeing some of it actually go to you know to 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 these avenues yes you're seeing a lot of money go into the edtech institutes that we spoke of earlier <laughs> probably again that's that's that, that that might not opt- optimize outcomes for for most people but then again you're seeing a parallel industry that's cropping up right now to upskill you know these 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 graduates that seemingly have no option right i mean right for instance we we are actively considering hiring engineering graduates from from parallel academies that are not i mean these are not government recognized mm-hmm. degrees but we mm-hmm. know that that matters little in the workforce what matters is you know competent individuals who can solve problems and and if there is a parallel industry that's growing that's 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 you know that's emerging in the landscape that's trying to solve this problem you're going to see some demand go there you you'll probably see you know some to a certain degree you'll see that this problem is being addressed right now by by well meaning entrepreneurs right but for for a lot of people i suppose you know the as much as i like to stay optimistic and i i i want to believe that you know they'll probably find other avenues i i must admit that i just don't see what could change unless you have as many jobs cropping up in the tertiary segment we're talking about services industry mm-hmm. i just don't see how you could accommodate so many young people you know it's it's just really hard i mean that's one of the reasons why you see that even engineering graduates finally chose to do something that is absolutely nothing it's it's not even close to their discipline because there simply aren't enough jobs right so right. so in some ways i'm i'm not quite sure how you can solve for that problem unless there is a structural change in how the indian economy transforms now some optimism is warranted because mm-hmm. 
you are seeing, you know, venture capital money coming into India. Now, I, I see a lot of people complaining and you know, we, we keep hearing about this, oh, you know, billion dollar valuation without yeah. profitability, etc., which is a fair mm-hmm. criticism. But I, I just can't seem to think why people are upset. Like it's foreign capital. It's actually doing good. It's actually doing exactly. good. And it's good in the sense that it's foreign capital that's coming to India, most of it at least, mm-hmm. to, to, to drive consumption in India. Like, like people are spending in India. And the discounts that you get on Swiki is probably financed by some chap in the US who made his killing, you know, I don't know, somewhere in Europe, right? I mean, yeah. that's the money that, that's what's happening here. So in some ways, I'm not sure why people are so extremely critical of, of VC money flowing in. And and I, I'd like to believe that if, if the trends persist, right, hopefully you will have more opportunities crop up. And I'm not just right. talking about the services industry, I'm also talking about innovation in the MSME space, right? Where, right. where a lot of job, I mean, obviously engineering is one domain, but then you have agriculture, you have industries. I mean, we've not even talked about those. There's a skill right. gap everywhere, right? You have skill gap in the uh, you know, blue workers. So you have skill gap everywhere across the board. Um, right. So white collar workers, blue collar workers everywhere. Right. So in some ways, hopefully, you know, once once you have access to capital, Again, entrepreneurs will sort of force the hand of the market to accommodate some of these engineers and hopefully graduates from other disciplines as well. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, it's not going to be an immediate fix. We'll probably have to wait for the next five years to see if, if things change for the better. It's a work in progress, I, I think. It, it is a work yeah. in progress that's happening that we are witnessing right now, right? Yeah. Uh, but let me ask you this because I think this will relate directly to your journey um, as being part of, you know, uh, FinShots and fi- I mean, like being part of one of the co-founders of FinShots, right? Uh, did you all recognize this at some point? Uh, because I know uh, we talked initially about, you know, uh, how people look at, you know, engineering entrance exams and even exams such as CAT and even UPSC exams as, you know, as a gateway to paradise, right? But you are someone who reached that gateway and when at the precipice of you know capitalizing on the amount of effort you're putting on your MBA through an IIM right and at that point you decided to you know switch gears switch paths and yeah. go along an entrepreneurial journey which is very risky filled with a lot of uncertainty filled with a lot of anxiety probably right uh, but did you yeah. at any point even though this was a really anxious decision that you were all making uh, recognize that this was a shift that India was making with the inflow of, you know, VC money and also with how many opportunities there currently exist for entrepreneurs to start their own thing. Did you at any point make that recognition? Yeah, no, of course, of course. I think I think that was sort of obvious in some level. Um, but, but I think there's also the fact from Rupen is, uh, you know, I was extremely privileged to make that choice. Right. A lot of people aren't in that position of privilege because, you know, they have parents to look after, they have their family to to tend to, and so in some ways, I don't think they have the opportunity to 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 pursue something of their own because they have responsibilities. They have to pay back. I didn't. I mean, sure, I had like a massive loan burden and stuff like that, but that was my own doing, and so I never felt pushed to the corner at any point in time while making that decision. So I felt free. I didn't feel like I was doing something extraordinary. Looking back, you could probably say, oh, that was risky. But in some ways, I thought it was crazy. Yes, but I thought that I could deal with crazy at that point in time, you know, because right. I had no obligations. right? And, right. and in some ways, 
you know even banu and pavan they had their own obligations i'm sure i think mm-hmm. they probably made more courageous choice than right. i did but but in my eyes i i didn't think i was taking as much of a risk having said that i think there was the recognition that capital was going to be easy to come by you know i mean you have all of these updates on linkedin and and you know these news websites talking about million dollar multi million dollar valuation so i was convinced that we'd be able to raise money but obviously that 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 conviction dissipated quite quickly when we recognized that not everybody can raise money um, mm-hmm. i think that's a talent in itself so there was a point in time i think in the first year it got it got really bad i mean i had to go back to teaching etc so so it's you know entrepreneurship obviously looks like it's 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 filled with glamour etc but it's not and you know we talk about the inflow of capital vc money etc and i think i think more entrepreneurs should obviously take the plunge but there's also there's also some reason to exercise caution because you know when you when you read all of these headlines so oh, this chap raised 5 million or this lady you know just just you know managed to convince you know vcs to part with you know 10 15 million you you'd like to think that that's possible and that is possible i think this is probably the most opportune moment for you to pounce on that opportunity um but but in some ways you also have to recognize that entrepreneurs don't make money when they raise money more <laughs> <Yeah>. often <laughs> more often than not you know they they take salaries that are not at par with some of the top earners in their own startup right and that's true for us as well and, <laughs> right. and they only make money when when hopefully you know i mean some of these companies have gone on to ipo etc obviously that's when they make money or but but for vast majority of startups right i mean you you hardly make any money unless you make money for the vcs first mm-hmm. and and again you know if 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 the data in front of me is is i mean it's it's plain and simple i think about 90% of all vcs don't make enough returns to generate the kind of risk that the investors take their investors yeah people who invest in vc funds um so in some ways if if they don't make money entrepreneurs don't make money and if entrepreneurs don't make money you have to ask why entrepreneurship um mm. so so right. it's not as if it's it's all you know just just because you're you yeah, probably the, yeah. the most the you know the outcomes are optimized for indian consumers yeah i mean if you're getting a credit card that's probably not worried about collecting funds at the end of it i mean that's that's good <laughs> for well, i think the person using the credit i'm not saying you should default on your obligations but then again right people will do it because that's that's who's ultimately benefiting um so so there is a case to be made that you know yeah i mean this is probably the most opportune moment for you to start up in the country i mean this is india is flush with capital um, mm-hmm. you know if you if you're reasonably industrious i think there are enough vcs out there who will fund the idea but there's also a case to be made that vcs only fund ideas that are, you know that, that have the potential to you know become back. yeah yeah i mean I, i'm i'm talking about unicorns right i mean you're right. not going to if somebody's going to tell people that oh i'm i want to build a business that that's just like you know it, it could probably be a 100 crore business but but that's that's it's a small market etc then yeah you're probably not going to get as much money and obviously if you don't raise money then no outcomes no outcomes why entrepreneurship it goes back to the same cycle um yeah. but but yeah but for people making a change and and obviously trying to do something that that sort of you know brings a positive change you know makes a dent in the indian economy i think there's no better time to start up so so yeah i hope that more entrepreneurs recognize that fact as we did in some level back back in 
Right. Uh, I think that's a good segue into what I wanted to get into as well, because you're talking about people wanting to start up, right? But let's yes. talk very briefly, because I think there is a fundamental difference um, between working in a startup and working for a very structured organization, right? Uh, yeah. Because this is the first startup I worked in. Uh, my earlier organization was a much more larger enterprise across the world and yeah. all of that um, since I was working in IT as well. So what do you think is the fundamental difference between what is looked at at a candidate who's applying for a job at a startup and a candidate who's applying for a job at a company that is not a startup but a very established company? You know, there is this saying that, you know, if you at some point recognize that you've tapped out potential then you have to start doing something else where there's infinite potential where you find that, well, you know, the world is my oyster, that kind of, you know, thing. So you'll have to pivot and you'll have to pivot to places where you probably have excessive competition. You'll probably have a, a new domain that, that is completely unexplored, right? So it's, it's, it's yours. It's virgin territory in some ways. So you have to recognize the problem, build solutions and do all sorts of things to justify your potential, the billion dollar potential that your company holds, which is the only time when you'll be able to actually convince people to fund your business. So in many ways, startups have to be malleable, extremely malleable. They can't be saying, oh, you know what? I'm not going to sell insurance because that's not my thing. No, if there's an opportunity to make money and if I believe that this could actually boast my company's potential you know in front of investors elsewhere etc then they do it i'm not saying it's the right thing to do i'm saying that's what happens and mm -hmm. so there are external pressures for you to be as malleable as possible and 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 you'll have to be able to execute it as quickly as possible as well so in many ways when we are hiring especially in startups we want people who are industrious who are going to think on their own feet who are going to do things without specific instructions, right? So if, if I had a list of instructions and I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Well, then you'll you'll be a perfect fit for for, for, a, for an enterprise that obviously has mm -hmm. been in the, you know, Indian ecosystem for let's say 20, 30 years. But mm -hmm. if, if, if it's a startup, right, two, three years, then you've got to be able to think on your feet. Now, what kind of skills do we specifically look for? Obviously, you'll have to be industrious. And that means you, you in some ways, you have to, do things that 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 might take you out of your comfort zone, right? So if, if you're somebody who doesn't talk to people or doesn't like engaging with people, sure, like maybe there's a spot for you somewhere. Maybe right. you could you could do something that that could still propel the startup forward. But but a lot of times, I think people are looking for outspoken individuals who do something extraordinary, who mm -hmm. add more value, right? I mean, in many ways, you know, we want people who probably do do this job better than us, right? So we want. We want somebody who will come in and say, okay, I can improve things. So I, I, I know that this isn't a sort of a very useful guide, but, but no, that's I how think it probably are. is because, uh, you know, like uh, I've been here, I'll, I'll complete two years, I think in June, right? Yes. And from what I have seen uh, being part of just FinShots and also being part of the recruitment team in, in FinShots is that what has really worked is when people take initiatives. 
right? When people right. Uh, take a sort of ownership in the work in right. the sense that they know that if there's a particular problem, they don't leave for it to be solved by someone else, which right. does happen in an organization which has a massive hierarchy because you are dependent yeah. on someone else solving the problem for you or, you yeah. know, information coming from another team that you're working in tandem with. But here, I think one of the skills that probably is useful uh, is the skill of just taking initiative, right? I think you mentioned yeah. it as industriousness, which is absolutely right. But apart from that, just the sense that you don't have to be told what to do and that you see that this is part of your job to execute a certain part of, you know, the general work of a particular organization. And if you can just take that initiative, suggest it and then get the job done and show experiments. I think that is definitely something that, you know, uh, that is a skill that is looked upon regardless of where you come from in your educational background. So you could be in, I think in that, you know, that, that percentage of people that didn't make it to the top jobs. But if you still, I think, exhibit this trait, that is a highly valued trait, I would think. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. I mean, I'm, I think it's, it, like I said, it exemplifies the kind of people that obviously startups are looking to hire. And, and when you work in that ecosystem, obviously, one of the benefits um, of, of, of being a part of that culture is that you probably will soon enough decide that you want to start up, you, know, you want to do something of your own, create more opportunities, create more jobs in the process, you're going to raise more money. And, and if anything, if, if you're looking for, for the next wave of growth, right, how, how will we be able to accommodate all of those people, all those graduates who probably don't have as many opportunities right now? Well, we need more entrepreneurs, we need more capital. And so we should be celebrating both, I suppose, in some ways. And, and, and th that's probably the only way I can, I mean, the, the only way out, at least, um, from what I can understand. So, yeah, I agree. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, let me get back to another thing that I want to talk about uh, because you've been at, uh, I mean, how long has it been since you all have been together working on Finception, FinShots, Ditto? How, yeah, how I mean, many years? Uh, 2018. Yeah. So it's, it's almost, yeah, yeah. So it's almost four years. So because the, the most interesting thing, one of the things that I like the most is I think a lot of the people whom you had right from the start, right, yeah. have yeah. still been part of the team even till today, right? Yeah. Which yeah. which kind of uh, is proof, testament to the one of the points that we made just before this, that, you know, if you find people who take initiative, then they are very essential to like a growth of a startup. And they also feel that they're doing something that's meaningful, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what did you look for initially when you were choosing the initial set of people outside of the four of you, right, who are co-founders? Right. So what exactly were you looking for in people when you wanted them to work with you all to establish something? Because you didn't even, I mean, you had, you, of course, you had an idea of what you wanted to do and the problems that you were trying to solve, but yeah, you didn't have yeah. a concrete course to achieve that. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, there are two aspects to it. Yeah. I mean, the first aspect is obvious. We didn't have the, you know, because we didn't raise ludicrous sums of money from outside VCs. We never had the compulsion to grow at all costs because when you have this compulsive need to grow at all costs, you make decisions that are not optimal for yourself and also for your employees. And you put them under a lot of strain and, and pressure and, and obviously it becomes outcome oriented. And obviously we are outcome oriented as well. It's just that yes. there isn't that intense pressure to succeed at all costs. Yeah. I mean, we're okay. Like if things don't work out and, and I mean, we don't want to build a billion dollar business. We just want to build a business that's in some ways meaningful, that adds some value, the people that work with us and also our investors. 
and in some ways that adds value to us as entrepreneurs as well so it's okay for us to to not grow at all costs so that's probably the biggest reason i think if 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 you removed pressure from the equation i mean if, let's suppose you didn't have this burden of vc capital weighing on you all the time i think more entrepreneurs will make choices that will optimize outcomes for their employees and you will see that employees inevitably stay right the only other way for you to actually get them to stick to your organization is pay above and beyond what the market demands i mean that's another alternative that's what a lot of people are doing but eventually there there's a breaking point yeah people people eventually be fed up and so so i feel like that answers you know part of the question where you know we never had the compulsion i don't think we ever forced people into doing things but when we hired as well i think we quickly recognized the most important aspect like obviously you need competent people yeah i mean you need people who can think on their feet who are, who are extremely focused determined etc but then you also need people who understand the value and the culture that you want to sort of display like there are people who have this attitude of win at all costs i mean when you hire such people obviously they're not going to be a good fit and we've done that mistake we've we've sort of had people we've hired people who simply didn't feel like they're a part of the company because they had this attitude of win at all costs like oh why aren't we doing this why shouldn't we do that and obviously when we tone down that rhetoric i i think they 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 mistake it for a lack of ambition which is anything but that i mean we have a lot of ambition it's just that we we'd much rather build a product and a service that 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 doesn't tow the unethical boundaries that more often than not entrepreneurs are forced to tow um so 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 we we i think cultural fit has has probably been and it's a vague thing you know it's hard for you to tell if somebody is a good cultural fit but often times our conversations rarely circle on on just you know oh what did you do before this i mean oh, what projects did you work on what what you know what's what do you work, you know it's usually conversation about who you are where do you come from right i mean what, what, what let's suppose um we we had somebody who's who's had a major life changing event we want to focus on that aspect like what happened there right i mean who are you as a person because i think right. that's more valuable because that way i feel like once they understand the culture they'd be willing to go to lengths extreme lengths in some cases to to work for the company because they feel like they're a part of it they they truly are they're not just doing it because somebody else is telling them to because they they resonate with the values that we espouse um mm-hmm. so so i feel i feel like more often than not entrepreneurs are forced to hire at all costs very quickly and then grow at all costs which which obviously translates to undue pressure on their employees which forces them you know to to at some point quit and then there's churn and then they have to rehire and then you have inflated salaries right so you've seen that cycle happen so long as vc money keeps coming in and that's one of the negative effects i suppose in some ways um because because while that money does benefit most people in some ways it also distorts the market um right. and and you know again people talk well, well it's okay now you know people are getting paid really well yes yeah. they are but again it's a small <laughs> subset of people yeah i mean it's a small yeah. subset of people that are getting paid really really well but let's suppose we had as many skilled folks you know uh, vying for the same opportunities they'd all get paid quite decently right i mean that that probably is a better outcome obviously you can't force you can't compel entrepreneurs to do that i but i hope that at some point once enough graduates upskill themselves they'll they'll begin recognizing that they can also get a decent stab at at making a you know good living right so hopefully that, hopefully that happens yeah. 
right um, so let me end with like you know i think the last question that i wanted to ask you um, i think since you've been like part of this entrepreneurial journey in fin shots at ditto earlier at finception what is this you know meant to you personally because do you, because you're working in a startup and of course many of your batchmates are probably making the big bucks <laughs> working yeah. in organizations uh, yeah. that are probably really prestigious and you're start you started your own thing you're working on something of your own so what is it personally mean to you to work with a bunch of your friends with a bunch of your classmates batchmates i should say in starting something and continuing to be part of it through the many you know ups and downs also as you plan to take it forward what does it mean to you oh no it's it's i think it's been extremely fulfilling rupan i mean the, the fact of the matter is i i look back at the past 3 years i mean sure like i didn't make as much money as most of my batchmates and i don't think i will ever make that kind of money uh, but but i think i've also come to recognize that 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 the impact that you know finshots has had on again it's it's not at a scale that's gargantuan it's probably a small scale at which we've been able to make an impact but that impact is obvious to us i mean i i listen to people who who often write back to us and tell how finshots has been able to help them and and ditto as well to a large extent how how it's made the process easier and and so when you see that you can actually build a sustainable enterprise by doing the right things and you know obviously as entrepreneurs we we screw up and and there's no doubt that we've screwed up as well on many occasions but the fact that we've actually tried to do the right thing even when we were in you know when we talk about stocks etc with this you know the the propensity to abuse the system is so high which is one of the reasons why you see that the, the most unscrupulous folks seems to come from this domain and obviously there is the there is that aspect but but i look back and see that we've always tried to do the right thing right by not just you know our own standards and values and principles but also right to you know we do the right thing for the investors and for our employees etc so so i'd like to look back and say that this has been an extremely fulfilling and rewarding journey irrespective of the fact that you know we probably not as made much money and there's also the aspect that it brings with it a certain level of prestige um, and i and i think a lot of entrepreneurs discount it completely when you're an entrepreneur and you do something of value and and there are customers out there even it could be 10 people right 10 people who are buying your service and using it i think you can take extreme pride in the fact that you built something of value because i often hear people complaining about how india is is probably not growing as much how we have so many problems in this country and we do and i recognize that but we're never going to make any meaningful stride if there aren't enough people working on the problems that plague this country some of them are structural that they're never going to i think okay probably never but it's going to take a long time for us to solve some of the structural problems that are present in this country but there are so many young men and women in this country who are trying to make a change and i feel proud that i am part of that you know no matter my contribution could be very limited but 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 the fact of the matter is i still feel extreme pride in the fact that i've been able to take part in that journey and and not just critique and we obviously i critique a lot i mean finshots right. is about in some ways understanding the system and also critiquing it when critique right. does warrant merit but but the fact that i've been able to do something about it as well i think i think i have to be thankful that i i've had the privilege and the honor to actually be here and and do all of these things and and no i it's been an extremely fulfilling journey and i wouldn't swap it for anything else i suppose um so so yeah i mean nothing to complain 
Right. Yeah. I I think I'll I'll give my answer as well. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> to no, my own question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> We're allowed to do that. <laughs> yeah. <All right. laughs> the I think the fundamental uh, thing change that has happened to me in this last uh, one and a half to little one and a half two years that I've been part of Ditto is going back to something that we earlier mentioned is about this entire thing of initiative uh, which I have to take to make my job. on a daily basis better and yeah. i think that's quite i mean you get you get a lot of kick out of it which is very underrated which is which is sometimes you even take for granted um but i know this cuz i can compare it with other work experiences that i've had that my friends have right and and also the the fact that if i don't show up to work there's a lot that's banking on me right yeah. and because yeah. of which i really have to you know come in early at be in, in somewhat the right frame of mind uh, you have to, to record the podcast i have to record the podcast <laughs> Yeah. Uh, people are going to be up in arms otherwise <laughs> yeah I, and because of that right it it's not just a sense of urgency that if i'm not there something bad happens but it's also like you know i get to decide how far i can go in this particular work right and yeah. i think yeah. because of how practical that is as i as i do more i see results which are very practical which are not hidden by too much of levels of hierarchy right and because of that it makes the job very practical and because of that it makes it very exciting like you're actually seeing yourself contribute in a very uh, transparent way i think yeah. that yeah. is a very underrated thing that you could take for granted which i which i don't Uh, yeah no no I think, I, I think part of what I like uh, you know what I mean you you came in as I think that that's again a testament of the fact that you know you you truly realize your potential when you're working in such a malleable environment because yeah. you you came in as a stand up comedian I don't yeah. think you ever imagined that you would be you know be doing this podcast on your own or you probably will will be doing HR and managing operations <laughs> yeah. at some point and doing all of these things yeah and the fact that you know you've gone on to not just do it but also excel at it you know in many ways you know people i mean i was just looking at spotify yeah, you have to be very now. careful because i don't take compliments you know that right but 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 i'm just i'm just saying nonetheless in that i mean obviously you know the utility of working in a startup is that i mean obviously you get to challenge yourself but you also recognize Oh man, I can do that. Like I, I don't think I'd have ever recognized the fact that I could write. For instance, I, I never knew this. I mean, the the only I only came to this fateful realization that I could actually write for a living is is when <laughs> right. when we were forced to write. I mean, there was And no other. Just as a side note, did you blog before this? Write anything? No, no, I never, this? I never, I never <laughs> did anything of that sort. In fact, that that's one of the most surprising things that I told my 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 friends from from yesterday. In fact, recently. a friend of mine from i am bought you know policy from ditto and then i i, I told him why why didn't you reach out to me i would have helped you you know with the whole buying process etc because he's my friend yeah. and then he said no no i'll i'll reach you know i'll i'll get back to you not for insurance but probably financial advice and then he added as a caveat yeah. he said something i never thought i would say to you because obviously <laughs> you know i i wasn't just i hated finance and so i've come to recognize that working in an environment such as this truly Lets you thrive in places that you would never think you'd thrive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's it's no, it's this incredible. Is, this is true because I think I was doing some show I think sometime last year, and I was telling my friend yeah. about how we should get insurance. And yeah. this is after the time that I got married, and he was so angry. I said, "He said, first of all, I'm so angry that you become old by getting married, and now I'm <laughs> angrier that you know about insurance, <laughs> which is the ultimate <laughs> old man thing to know." About. <laughs> yeah, that's like, crazy. Yeah. If, if, if you told me thought, that, I'd be. 
I'd be selling insurance after, you know, I mean, when I'm 28, I would probably have laughed at you. Obviously, I'd have laughed at you if it said I would be writing. And, if you know, I yeah. definitely have laughed at you if it said I'd be doing anything in the financial domain. But that's how life is. I suppose. In some ways, I think that's, that's one of the greatest things about working in such an environment. You truly get to explore and, and obviously find out things about yourself that you were completely, um, you know, blissfully unaware of until, until that moment. Um, so, right. yeah. In a way, there's a good end to our conversation of what yeah. we really started off with because we started off with, you know, people who are like, you know, technically driven and are forced to do this engineering college, uh, engineering degree and they come yeah. out of it saying like there are not many opportunities. But you later find out as life goes, right, that you may be good at something that you never even had the wildest <laughs> fantasy that you would be good at, right? Yeah. So I think that's a good end to this conversation. Thank you so much, Reith, uh, for yeah. doing this and for spending time in recording yeah. this. Thanks, Rupan. All right, guys, that was the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Now, you heard me and Shreya talk about what it feels like to work in a startup. And if you want to feel the same and want to work with us and join our team, you could do so too by applying for a job using the link in the description below. Or you could send this to a friend who's looking for a job and we will be happy to have them apply. As always, thank you so much for supporting FinShots and Ditto and keep listening to FinShots Daily.